Part 1, Chapter 3, Section 2 of Chance by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chance, Part 1, Chapter 3, Section 2. You must not think, went on Marlowe after a pause, that on that morning with Fine I went consciously in my mind over all this, let us call it information. No, better say this fund of knowledge which I had, or rather which existed in me, in regard to de Barrel. Information is something one goes out to seek and puts away when found, as you might do a piece of lead. Ponderous, useful, unvibrating, dull. Whereas knowledge comes to one, this sort of knowledge, a chance acquisition, preserving in its repose a fine, resonant quality. But as such distinctions touch upon the transcendental, I shall spare you the pain of listening to them. There are limits to my cruelty. No, I didn't reckon up carefully in my mind all this I have been telling you. How could I have done so with Fine right there in the room? He sat perfectly still, statuesque in homely fashion, after having delivered himself of his effective assent. Yes, the convict. And I, far from indulging in a reminiscent excursion into the past, remained sufficiently in the present to muse in a vague, absent-minded way on the respectable proportions and on the, upon the whole, comely shape of his great pedestrian's calves, for he had thrown one leg over his knee, carelessly, to conceal the trouble of his mind by an air of ease. But all the same the knowledge was in me, the awakened resonance of which I spoke just now. I was aware of it on that beautiful day, so fresh, so warm and friendly, so accomplished, an exquisite courtesy of the much-abused English climate when it makes up its meteorological mind to behave like a perfect gentleman. Of course, the English climate is never a rough. It suffers from spleen somewhat frequently, but that is gentlemanly too, and I don't mind going to meet him in that mood. He has his days of grey, veiled, polite melancholy in which he is very fascinating. How seldom he lapses into a blustering manner after all, and then it is mostly in a season when, appropriately enough, one may go out and kill something. But his fine days are the best for stopping at home, to read, to think, to muse, even to dream. In fact, to live fully, intensely and quietly, in the brightness of comprehension, in that receptive glow of the mind, the gift of the clear, luminous and serene weather. That day I had intended to live intensely and quietly, basking in the weather's glory, which would have lent enchantment to the most unpromising of intellectual prospects. For a companion I had found a book, not bemused with the cleverness of the day, a fine weather book, simple and sincere, like the talk of an unselfish friend. But looking at little Fine seated in the room, I understood that nothing would come of my contemplative aspirations, that in one way or another I should be let in for some form of severe exercise. Walking, it would be, I feared, since for me that idea was inseparably associated with the visual impression of Fine. Where, why... How a rapid striding rush could be brought in helpful relation to the good fine's present trouble and perplexity I could not imagine, except on the principle that senseless pedestrianism was fine's panacea for all the ills and evils, bodily and spiritual, of the universe. It could be of no use for me to say or do anything. It was bound to come. 
contemplating his muscular limb encased in a golf stocking, and under the strong impression of the information he had just imparted, I said, wondering, rather irrationally, "'And so de Beryl had a wife and child. That girl's his daughter. And how?' Fine interrupted me by stating again earnestly, as though it was something not easy to believe, that his wife and himself had tried to befriend the girl in every way. Indeed they had. I did not doubt him for a moment, of course, but my wonder at this was more rational. At that hour of the morning, you mustn't forget, I knew nothing as yet of Mrs. Fine's contact, it was hardly more, with de Barrel's wife and child during their exile at the Priory, in the culminating days of that man's fame. Fine, who had come over, it was clear, solely to talk to me on that subject, gave me the first hint of this initial, merely out-of-doors, connection. The girl was quite a child then, he continued. Later on she was removed out of Mrs Fine's reach in charge of a governess, a very unsatisfactory person, he explained. His wife had then, hmm, met him, and on her marriage she lost sight of the child completely. But after the birth of Polly... Polly was the third fine girl. She did not get on very well and went to Brighton for some months to recover her strength. And there, one day in the street, the child, she wore her hair down her back still, recognised her outside a shop and rushed, actually rushed, into Mrs Fine's arms. Rather touching, this. And so, disregarding the cold impertinence of that, hmm, governess, his wife naturally responded. He was solemnly fragmentary. I broke in with the observation that it must have been before the crash. Fine nodded with deepened gravity, stating in his bass tone, just before, and indulged himself with a weighty period of solemn silence. De Barrel, he resumed suddenly, was not coming to Brighton for weekends regularly then. Must have been conscious already of the approaching disaster. Mrs Fine avoided being drawn into making his acquaintance, and this suited the views of the governess person, very jealous of any outside influence. But in any case, it would not have been an easy matter. Extraordinary, stiff-backed, thin figure all in black, the observed of all, while walking hand in hand with the girl, apparently shy, but, and here Fine came very near showing something like insight, probably nursing, under a diffident manner, a considerable amount of secret arrogance. Mrs. Fine pitied Flora de Barrel's fate long before the catastrophe. Most unfortunate guidance, very unsatisfactory surroundings. The girl was known in the streets, was stared at in public places as if she had been a sort of princess, but she was kept with a very ominous consistency from making any acquaintances, though of course there were many people, no doubt, who would have been more than willing to mm, make themselves agreeable to Mr. Barrel. But this did not enter into the plans of the governess, an intriguing person hatching a most sinister plot under her severe air of distant, fashionable exclusiveness. Good little Fine's eyes bulged with solemn horror as he revealed to me, in agitated speech, his wife's more than suspicions at the time of that Mrs. Mrs. What's-her-name's perfidious conduct. She actually seemed to have, Mrs. Fine asserted, formed a plot already to marry eventually her charge to an impecunious relation of her own, a young man with furtive eyes and something impudent in his manner, whom that woman called her nephew, and whom she was always having down to stay with her. And perhaps not her nephew, no relation at all. 
Fine emitted with a convulsive effort this, the most awful part of the suspicions Mrs. Fine used to impart to him piecemeal when he came down to spend his weekends gravely with her and the children. The Fines, in their good-natured concern for the unlucky child of the man busied in stirring casually so many millions, spent the moments of their weekly reunion in wondering earnestly what could be done to defeat the most wicked of conspiracies trying to invent some tactful line of conduct in such extraordinary circumstances. I could see them, simple and scrupulous, worrying honestly about that unprotected big girl while looking at their own little girls playing on the seashore. Fine assured me that his wife's rest was disturbed by the great problem of interference. It was very acute of Mrs. Fine to spot such a deep game, I said, wondering to myself where her acuteness had gone to now, to let her be taken unawares by a game so much simpler and played to the end under her very nose. But then, at that time, when her nightly rest was disturbed by the dread of the fate preparing for de Barrel's unprotected child, she was not engaged in writing a compendious and ruthless handbook on the theory and practice of life for the use of women with a grievance. She could, as yet, before the task of evolving the philosophy of rebellious action had affected her intuitive sharpness, perceive things which were, I suspect, moderately plain. For I am inclined to believe that the woman whom chance had put in command of Flora de Barrel's destiny took no very subtle pains to conceal her game. She was conscious of being a complete master of the situation, having once for all established her ascendancy over de Barrel. She had taken all her measures against outside observation of her conduct, and I could not help smiling at the thought what a ghastly nuisance the serious, innocent fines must have been to her. How exasperated she must have been by that couple falling into Brighton as completely unforeseen as a bolt from the blue, if not so prompt. How she must have hated them. But I conclude she would have carried out whatever plan she might have formed. I can imagine de Barrel, accustomed for years to defer to her wishes, and either through arrogance or shyness, or simply because of his unimaginative stupidity, remaining outside the social pale, knowing no one but some card-playing cronies. I can picture him to myself, terrified at the prospect of having the care of a marriageable girl thrust on his hands, forcing on him a complete change of habits, and the necessity of another kind of existence which he would not even have known how to begin. It is evident to me that Mrs. What's-her-name would have had her atrocious way with very little trouble, even if the excellent fines had been able to do something. She would simply have bullied de Barrel in a lofty style. There's nothing more subservient than an arrogant man when his arrogance has once been broken in some particular instance. However, there was no time and no necessity for anyone to do anything. The situation itself vanished in the financial crash, as a building vanishes in an earthquake. Here one moment and gone the next, with only an ill-omened, slight preliminary rumble. Well, to say, in a moment, is an exaggeration, perhaps, but that everything was over in just twenty-four hours is an exact statement. Fine was able to tell me all about it, and the phrase that would depict the nature of the change best is, an instant and complete destitution. I don't understand these matters very well, but from Fine's narrative it seemed as if the creditors or the depositors or the competent authorities had got hold in the twinkling of an eye of everything de Barrel possessed in the world, down to his watch and chain, the money in his trousers pocket, his spare suit of clothes, and I suppose the cameo pin out of his black satin cravat. 
Everything. I believe he gave up the very wedding ring of his late wife. The gloomy priory with its damp park and a couple of farms had been made over to Mrs. de Barrel, but when she died, without making a will, it reverted to him, I imagine. They got that, of course, but it was a mere crumb in a Sahara of starvation, a drop in the thirsty ocean. I dare say that not a single soul in the world got the comfort of as much as a recovered thruppenny bit out of the estate. Then, less than crumbs, less than drops, there were to be grabbed. The lease of the big Brighton house, the furniture therein, the carriage and pair, the girl's riding horse, her costly trinkets, down to the heavily gold-mounted collar of her pedigree St. Bernard. The dog, too, went, the most noble-looking item in the beggarly assets. What, however, went first of all, or rather vanished, was nothing in the nature of an asset. It was that plotting governess with the trick of a perfect lady manner severely conventional, and the soul of a remorseless brigand. When a woman takes to any sort of unlawful man-trade, there's nothing to beat her in the way of thoroughness. It's true that you will find people who will tell you that this terrific virulence in breaking through all established things is altogether the fault of men. Such people will ask you, with a clever air, why the servile wars were always the most fierce, desperate and atrocious of all wars and you may make such answer as you can, even the eminently feminine one, if you choose, so typical of the women's literal mind. I don't see what this has to do with it. How many arguments have been knocked over, I won't say knocked down, by these few words? For if we men try to put the spaciousness of all experience into our reasoning, and would fain put the infinite itself into our love, it isn't, as some writers have remarked, it isn't women's doing. Oh, no. They don't care for these things. That sort of aspiration is not much in their way, and it should be a funny world, the world of their arranging, where the irrelevant would fantastically step in to take the place of the sober, humdrum imaginative. I raised my hand to stop my friend Marlowe. Do you really believe what you have said? I asked, meaning no offence, because with Marlowe one never could be sure. Only on certain days of the year, said Marlowe readily, with a malicious smile. Today I have been simply trying to be spacious, and I perceive I've managed to hurt your susceptibilities, which are consecrated to women. When you sit alone and silent, you are defending in your mind the poor women from attacks which cannot possibly touch them. I wonder what can touch them. But... To soothe your uneasiness, I will point out again that an irrelevant world would be very amusing if the women take care to make it as charming as they alone can, by preserving for us certain well-known, well-established, I'll almost say hackneyed illusions, without which the average male creature cannot get on. And that condition is very important, for there is nothing more provoking than the irrelevant when it has ceased to amuse and charm and then the danger would be of the subjugated masculinity in its exasperation making some brusque, unguarded movement and accidentally putting its elbow through the fine tissue of the world of which I speak, and that would be fatal to it, for nothing looks more irretrievably deplorable than fine tissue which has been damaged. The women themselves would be the first to become disgusted with their own creation." There was something of women's highly practical sanity and also of their irrelevancy in the conduct of Mr. Barrell's amazing governess. It appeared from Fine's narrative that the day before the first rumble of the cataclysm, the questionable young man arrived unexpectedly in Brighton to stay with his aunt. 
To all outward appearance, everything was going on normally. The fellow went out riding with the girl in the afternoon, as he often used to do, a sight which never failed to fill Mrs. Fine with indignation. Fine himself was down there with his family for a whole week, and was called to the window to behold the iniquity in its progress and to share in his wife's feelings. There was not even a groom with them. And Mrs. Fine's distress was so strong at this glimpse of the unlucky girl, all unconscious of her danger, riding smilingly by, that Fine began to consider seriously whether it wasn't their plain duty to interfere at all risks simply by writing a letter to de Barrel. He said to his wife, with a solemnity I can easily imagine, You ought to undertake that task, my dear. You have known his wife, after all. That's something, at any rate. On the other hand, the fear of exposing Mrs. Fine to some nasty rebuff worried him exceedingly. Mrs. Fine, on her side, gave way to despondency. Success seemed impossible. Here was a woman for more than five years in charge of the girl, and apparently enjoying the complete confidence of the father. What that would be effective could one say without proofs, without... This Mr. de Barrel must be, Mrs. Fine pronounced, either a very stupid or a downright bad man to neglect his child so. You will notice that perhaps because of Fine's solemn view of our transient life and Mrs. Fine's natural capacity for responsibility, it had never occurred to them that the simplest way out of the difficulty was to do nothing and dismiss the matter as no concern of theirs, which in a strict worldly sense it certainly was not. But they spent, Fine told me, a most disturbed afternoon, considering the ways and means of dealing with the danger hanging over the head of the girl out for a ride, and no doubt enjoying herself with an abominable scamp. End of Part 1, Chapter 3, Section 2